You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. And this week's topic is the significance of widespread LNG support among Canada's Western premiers, plus news on air conditioners for seniors in BC and the wreckage of the Titan submersible. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Wonderful to be here. Good morning, my Let's get into it. BC's liquefied natural gas ambitions have gone another boost as Western premiers have shown their united support for the sector. What form has that come in and what are the other key pieces of information? We just had a consequential meeting in Whistler of the premiers of seven key jurisdictions, uh, not only BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, uh, which I think most folks understand are Western provinces, but also Manitoba and uh, premiers of Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. And uh, they discussed a number of very, very key topics. I felt uh, like the readout from their uh, meetings was a very, very good indicator of their finger being on the political pulse and issues that people are having. Uh, They spoke about strategic infrastructure and uh, challenges and needs to build more to get products to market to near shore. So we have sustainable, secure supply chains of the things that we need. Uh, They specifically acknowledged the affordability crisis, and I thought this was uh, quite significant. Um, There's been sizable work on affordability by many of these respective jurisdictions, but um, in certain terms, they say this really, really needs to be addressed in a variety of ways through interprovincial, interterritorial uh, jurisdiction in many forms. I uh, particularly work with the federal government, so a good chunk of what they were pressing was advocacy, support, and coordination by the federal government on a number of key files. Uh, they also spoke about things like immigration uh, and wait lists and delays. Uh, they want a little bit more uh, support in setting labor market priorities uh, with respect to immigration and getting skilled workers uh, into the economy as quickly as possible. They also identified uh, the need to support Ukrainian refugees uh, and increase funding for programs that are processing their applications. Um, other topics that came up were Arctic sovereignty, uh, which, you know, is occasionally uh, we don't really talk about, but uh, given uh, some things that have happened in the last six months and, uh, you know, unidentified objects uh, passing across North America, it's Good to see that on the, the agenda. And they also acknowledge community safety. But specifically on climate action and sustainable development, um, they really, really emphasize that Canadian LNG, uh, which uh, can be low or zero emitting, and the export of it is a very, very important part of uh, understanding and responding to the opportunity to transition to lower emissions energy sources uh, globally. Uh, they also noted the role of hydroelectricity, uranium, and hydrogen. Um, so the piece where they essentially told the federal government to support emissions credit trading across international borders, I feel is a very significant one. Um, Article 6 negotiations, and Article 6 is so technical speak, but uh, coming out of uh, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, um, it's been a bit of a political, geopolitical hot potato for many years, uh, is, is a very significant one to work out if we are to have consistent, fair, uh, and effective carbon trading systems globally, uh, where the math actually adds up. Jurisdictions need to participate. Climate change is a global issue. So this this is quite important. And uh, they want to see the federal government working with provinces and territories to finalize those rules uh, to ensure that they receive credit for reductions that are uh, being made on emissions in their jurisdictions. Um, So I'm excited to see what that means, practically speaking. And uh, likewise, also quite excited that LNG has gotten such a clear and visible shout-out from uh, these Western leaders. And why is that support so important now? 
Well, we're actually on the verge of getting our first major LNG Expo facility from Canada's West Coast operational in 2025. LNG Canada is going to start exporting product to Asian markets uh, from Kitimat. I can met some on the North Coast here in BC. Uh, it's one of many projects um, that is in some stage of development right now. And yeah, I believe it'll have a very, very foundational role in enabling energy transition in Asia to occur. Um, this is, of course, the argument that the BC government has accepted and has been a proponent of uh, going back to the previous government. Um, the opportunity was already apparent. Uh, and ensuring that Asia has lots of clean-burning, uh, sustainably produced LNG, which BC has the means to produce, uh, to access and to use, is a very key part of how BC can help the fight against climate change globally. Uh, there are, as I said, a number of other projects with fiber LNG close to Squamish, BC, Silism's LNG further north on the coast uh, with the uh, support of the Miska Nation, and potentially other projects as well, as well are in the works. So it's a pivotal time for the sector and the industry. There's been a sizable transition in how Canada's energy sector has responded to these opportunities. And I am excited to see what this renewed support from Western premiers can yield. The federal government has really, I think, woken up on the realities of not only energy security, but security of key commodities. Uh, critical minerals were a key part of not only the premier's uh, comments, uh, but also the federal government's recent work over the last two years uh, following the pandemic and some of the challenges we've had with conflict in Europe, uh, simmering tensions in Asia and uh, many other places. So uh, I think this is overall positive news. Uh, we are in a changing world. There are pressures uh, that are facing not only BC families, but families across Canada uh, that are fundamentally economic in nature and shoring up our ability to deliver on high productivity exports is one of the most effective ways that we can ensure people's quality of life for decades to come. Now, let's talk about air conditioners, namely the announcement to fund them to help prevent heat wave mortalities among BC's vulnerable elders. What has led to this investment and what impact will it really have? The 2021 heat dome uh, was no doubt the start of Many of these conversations, although people have been talking about the risk of, you know, sudden and increased heat and extreme weather events as a consequence of climate change for quite a long time now, uh, and that heat dome was devastating and deadly. It came in really suddenly. It brought devastation. Heat spiked to the high 30s, even 40s in some spots. And, you know, these are not normal temperatures for BC, especially not outside of the southern Okanagan, which is usually a bit hotter and drier. Uh, at that time, myself, I was camping near Kamloops, and I recall just this dawning sense of horror, you know, watching, reading the news, uh, our car thermometer reading 39 degrees external temperature as we drove on the highway, and, I, you know, I, I've lived in B.C. my entire life. I was born here, uh, potentially the hottest uh, that I ever recall it being in this part of the world. Uh, you know, we had the blessing of NCAR AC, but many people who were at home were uh, you know, are, are vulnerable and actually maybe don't have homes in some cases, had no such relief. Uh, cooling stations were set up. There, there was a pretty quick response, but unfortunately it was one that really exposed the fundamental vulnerabilities of our emergency response system. And uh, vulnerable British Columbians in some cases experienced heat stroke, and also some folks passed away. And the BC government has now made a commitment. It is investing $10 million dollars to fund the installation of 8,000 air conditioners. 
And that's particularly important given how much more harmful heat spikes can be for elderly people, uh, including those with pre-existing health challenges. You know, regulating your temperature is challenging for someone who is at the peak of health. Uh, a little bit more difficult if you're older or you have uh, substantial health challenges already. Uh, but what's clear is 8,000 is not nearly enough. I can't fathom that there are only 8,000 people who need that support and who, who need that relief and who need that assurance that next time there is a spike, a spike in temperature, they will be able to cool down at home. Um, and it does come rather late, but it is a start. And as climate change intensifies, I know it's going to continue to expose some of these fundamental challenges we have with cooling, not only in BC, but globally. And there's a lot of work happening right now to innovate in building uh, better, less, more energy efficient air conditioning models. Uh, you know, some places in the world you go and you see a high-rise building, uh, you'll see just a row of air conditioners all the way down. Every single person has, uh, provided they can afford one, has installed one. And the energy demands coming from that are pretty high in places in the world where uh, coal is actually part of the baseload power. Uh, it, it leads to almost this frustrating paradoxical loop where uh, temperature is increasing because of climate change. Uh, people are getting very hot at home. Uh, they're tapping into their local energy grid, and if their local energy grid uh, is still based on uh, fossil fuels like coal, uh, they run into some problems. So, again, you know, that piece around providing cleaner burning products and, and fuels, uh, in addition to investments being made in renewable energies around the world right now, is very, very key. And BC has a role to play in that, as well as supporting people that we have here at home locally to make sure that they're safe in extreme weather events. Mm. And now another really big story on the other side of the continent. Attention has been on the site of the RMS Titanic, which sunk over 111 years ago. Another tragedy has unfolded as a group of five, including a teenage boy and the CEO of the exploration company, fell victim to a fatal accident while descending to view the wreck last week. What have been the latest developments in this story? Yeah, just yesterday, wreckage was actually brought to shore in Atlanta, Canada and St. John from the recovery effort. And a statement was also issued that um, there were some likely human remains that had been identified. Uh, you know, we likely won't know the details of that too much, but there is an extensive investigation currently being led by the U.S. to fully understand the causes of the accident. And I've seen a huge amount of discussion on this topic, uh, social media, news, everyone's attention has been wrapped with this. And, you know, there's a tragedy on top of another tragedy. 111 years ago, uh, over 1,000 people lost their lives. Uh, when the transatlantic liner uh, hit an iceberg and uh, sunk. And, uh, you know, it came to rest about 12,500 feet below sea level. Uh, that's an incredible depth, uh, and that's astounding water pressure that makes any kind of manned exploration of the seafloor there an incredibly dangerous uh, enterprise. And um, what we found is that the, some of the wreckage was found about 500 meters away from the uh, bow of the ship uh, that RMS Titanic. So, uh, very, very sad turn of events. Um, we have some commentary from Canadian James Cameron, who actually directed the Titanic film. Uh, you know, he happens to be a preeminent deep sea explorer. He's done similar tours. Uh, he's gone very, very, very deep, far deeper than the Titanic, uh, but usually in incredibly technically robust vehicles, um, fully understanding the risk of death, but uh, prepared to the nines uh, to do everything against that horrible, horrible water pressure, um, and he's drawn some comparisons in terms of the engineering and the technology utilized. OceanGate, uh, which is a company that tour, uh, made some, they cut some corners, and that is what CEO Stockton Rush almost bragged about. So a lot of criticism has gone in on that. Um, I know 
everyone likes to gawk at the adventures or sometimes the misadventures of the rich. Uh, but I've actually found uh, a good chunk of the jokes and commentary to be in poor form. Ultimately, five people died. You know, it's very, very sad. Uh, five fathers, sons, brothers who aren't going to be in their families' lives. Uh, it does bring us some valuable lessons about avoiding risk and taking measures when engaged in risky activities. And I hope as a whole, not only the scientific community and those engaged in building things for extreme exploration, whether it's, uh, you know, the depths of the ocean or heights of mountains or extraterrestrial um, exploration, uh, you know, really, really take those lessons to heart. And I hope the public continues to have sort of an openness to the spirit of exploration while being realistic about just how challenging circumstances outside of what we're designed for, which is, you know, this, this level of, uh, of elevation uh, on land, um, how risky these things can be. So um, I hope people can continue to think about these things, but do so tactfully and respectfully and acknowledging just the tragedy, the tragedy that has occurred. Exactly. I totally agree with you there. Margareta, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and you have a good weekend. You too.